Zephaniah chapter 1, from verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind, so that they shall walk like the blind, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. These are at times heavy uh, prophets that we're reading through in this series. Let's begin here in verse 1 and see what sense we can make of this. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 1, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. In the scheme of things, Josiah, son of Ammon, was a righteous king of Judah, one of only a few righteous kings in Judah's history. Righteous meaning he was faithful to the Lord. And so as a king, he set about undoing the unfaithfulness of the kings who had gone before him. He, he destroyed all the altars to false gods that had been built under those kings' watch, and he started repairing instead the temple of the Lord, Yahweh, to refocus the nation's worship back to God. While God's temple was being repaired, someone found in there the book of the law of Moses. 
In other words, that book we were in before in our Life and Doctrine segment and those Ten Commandments that we're thinking about at the moment, Israel had forgotten about, lost that book. Can you imagine? Anyway, the book was found during the renovations in the temple and it was brought to King Josiah and King Josiah read it and King Josiah instantly realised that they were all doomed. Why? Because they had sinned against God, breaking those commandments. All of that context, by the way, to Zephaniah, you can read for yourself later on in, in 2 Kings 22 and 23 or, or 2 Chronicles 34. But so too, uh, at some point in King Josiah's reign, the word of the Lord came to those people direct through this prophet, Zephaniah. And that word too, through this prophet, would also spell out their doom, just as Josiah realised when he read the lost scriptures. Justice was coming to Judah because they had sinned against the Lord. Zephaniah spoke to them the same word of judgment that they could see in the scriptures that they'd found. The clarity that Zephaniah brings on that and brings to our series too that we're thinking about this this mercy and justice of, of God in this series, the clarity Zephaniah brings is that the simple fact of God's justice inevitably translates to a judgment event. A judgment event. The day of the Lord, it's called here in verse 7 and, and actually all the way through that chapter. The day of the Lord. A day is coming when God will judge all sin. And nobody wants to think about that, if I'm guessing rightly. We don't like thinking about judgment. We don't like the idea that we are sinful. The idea that God will judge us for that sin. These are offensive ideas to our minds. And by and large, we've dismissed such ideas from our thinking, or, or we've engrossed ourselves at least so deeply in the here and now that we don't give any thought to what's coming on that day. Zephaniah makes us come to terms with it. But with a nice bit of distance first, because the doom in this passage that we've just read is, is actually directed at God's people in, in Zephaniah's day. If you look at verse 4, I will stretch out my hands against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place, etc., etc., God says. And so too in, in verses 10 and 11 and 12, the various districts of Jerusalem city are listed out, and, and that city is put clearly as, at the epicentre of this coming punishment. There, there can be no mistake if you read through this chapter that this day of the Lord, as it's called here, speaks of a day of justice coming for God's people in Judah some 2,630-odd years ago it is now. And their day of judgment was near, verse 14, and coming quickly, God warned them. He tried to bring them to their senses in verse 15, that terrifying section. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress, anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, clouds, thick darkness, trumpet blast, battle cry. Verse 17, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Uh, paying attention yet? Uh, and there'll be no escape, verse 18. Their silver and their gold is not going to save them on the day of the wrath of the Lord when it comes. It's pretty graphic, isn't it? Who could doubt that, that this was meant to bring about change in their lives when they heard this? From God, But what had been going on exactly, we should ask, in, in ancient Judah, why this coming judgment 
If it's a day of justice coming for them, then we should surely contemplate their sin. Verse 4 says that there were people in Judah who worshipped Baal. Baal was a false god, a god of the Canaanite people, the wicked people who lived in that land before Israel. Even among the nation's priests, verse 4 says, there was idolatry, worship of things other than the one true God. Idolatry, but by God's priests? Yes, he says. There are people who worship the sun and the moon and the stars, verse 5. That's what starry host means. There were people there who worshipped God, verse 5, but, but also worshipped false gods like Milcom, the god of the Ammonite people. But split worship like that actually dishonours God. So too, verse 6, there are people who've turned away from following God and people who have never sought God in the first place. All of those people, all of those responses to the one true God being unfaithful to him, uh, disobeying him, all of them will receive the same judgment. They will all be cut off from God. He says, wiped from the face of the earth, along with everything else. The other sins listed here uh, might also be actually about the same basic idolatry against God. So, so verse 8 is, is a bit more mysterious. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, he says, I will punish the official and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. The officials and the king's sons might be a literal reference to, to King Josiah's own sons, who, who were evil kings that followed after him, evil kings who reigned after him until Babylon came and carried out the judgment that God is warning about here through Zephaniah. Or perhaps it's not so specific. Maybe it just refers to the leadership of Israel generally, which apart from, as I say, just a handful of faithful examples, had been ungodly for the best part of 500 years, ungodly of these nations, ever since Solomon began worshipping Milcom and Ashtoreth and various other gods. So I don't think having a high position like the king was the cause for punishment, rather the failure to lead people after God faithfully. That was, after all, the king's mandated role. Those arrayed in foreign attire might be speaking of Israel's clothing, I wonder, specifically that they were supposed to follow, I guess, what we call a national dress code. Let me read something from Numbers to you. This is one of the books of Moses that these people in Judah may have lost. Numbers 15, 37, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments, and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So I wonder here in Zephaniah, perhaps Israel had abandoned their national clothing in, in Zephaniah's day because they'd abandoned God and his law. Maybe a, a foreign clothing per se is not the problem, but some kind of inner motive gone wrong in their hearts, a rejection of God, some kind of idolatry. 
so too it could be idolatry in verse 9. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. I think stepping on the threshold might just speak of simple idolatry. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, when the ark of God destroyed the statue of the Philistine god Dagon, the Philistines started a superstition about exactly that, not stepping on the threshold of the temple. And all these years later, perhaps that superstition, perhaps even worship of the Philistine god Dagon, had, had infiltrated Judah. One more note, verse 12, on their sin. He says, at that time I'll search Jerusalem with lamps and I'll punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. This sin refers to those who think that the Lord is disconnected, disinterested in what we're doing, or even powerless to act against wickedness. Again, they are rejecting God as God. I really like the underlying Hebrew poetry here in verse 12. He says, I will punish those who are congealing on their dregs. And the image is from winemaking. Freshly fermented wine is left intentionally to rest on its dregs or, or, or sediment to develop colour and body and flavour and all those things. Otherwise, uh, otherwise it would be pretty bland. Uh, but at some point it has to be separated off from the dregs or, or it'll thicken and ruin. It'll get uh, mouldy and, and, and off in flavour and so on and so on. When God says complacent here in our ESV, he's calling the people of Judah out as being congealed in their sinful idolatry thickened and, and ruined by all the worthless things that they obsess about and settle into. They think that it's not God's provision that they enjoy in life and that nor does he have any power or say over their fate or their life. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth, but the people are settled into that way of thinking, settled into that hardened sinful pride. In their hearts is a, is a comfortable, godless sludge. And judgment is coming for them, he says. And most, if, if not all, of the sin listed out here in different ways in Zephaniah 1 flows out of wrong worship, having other gods in their life, not listening to God in their life, not remembering God's call upon them, dividing their worship between God and other things, turning away from God, not even seeking God in the first place, thinking that he's disinterested or irrelevant, etc., etc. And so what about us is the inevitable question as we read through Zephaniah. How are we on, on those kind of things today? It's a really unpleasant and, and terrifying concept, let's be honest. But this idea of a day of justice against sin is, is actually written all across the Bible. And you can't get away from it unless you're deliberately trying to. God is speaking through Zephaniah into this particular context in Judah in those days, something that is fundamentally true about what he wants of everyone. There is one true God. And he wants us to glorify him and glorify him alone. And evidently, we haven't done that. Because as much as we might want to sit above this old scripture and, and focus on those Jerusalem specifics, 
Zephaniah 1 is, is actually bookended by very universal language. If you look at it again at the start of the chapter and the end of the chapter, look at these bookends. First of all, in verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Verse 3 is even more graphic. And then at the end, in verse 18, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. This idea of the day of the Lord has, has a wider, a universal sense, well beyond ancient Judah. And that means, I'm afraid, that it is relevant to you and I. Biblical prophecy, you see, often has both near and far implications of what's being prophesied. A near event on a small scale is really just like a model. It's like a little glimpse of uh, the great and the final fulfilment of, of what the prophecy is saying and that is still yet to come. The, the day of the Lord is, is a great example of those two kinds of implication. I mean, The judgment proclaimed here in Zephaniah clearly lines up with Judah and, and the Babylonian invasion, as I say, that, that comes along just 30-odd years after this warning and carries them all into exile for their continuing idolatry. The holy people of God here in Judah were cut off from the holy land of Judah. As verse 4 had warned, when the near implication of this prophecy was fulfilled against them in 586 BC. But at the same time, the warning here is clearly about more than that one historical event in ancient Judah. And we can absolutely know that because the, the day of God's justice continues to pop up all through Scripture. God was still speaking about the day of the Lord after the Jews returned from that exile, through the prophet Zechariah, for example. And of course, so too, Jesus was still warning us about this day, 700-ish years after Zephaniah's time. When Jesus ascended to heaven, his apostles continued to warn about this day of the Lord, such as in 1 Thessalonians where Paul says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security. Sound familiar? The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. There is peace and security, Paul says they'll be saying, but then sudden destruction will come upon them as labour pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So the day of the Lord is a bigger concept in the whole Bible story than just for ancient Judah at the time of Zephaniah. And that's because the sin that demands God's justice is not just an ancient Judah thing. It's a human thing. It's a basic fallen human thing. So as much later readers of this old book from Zephaniah, we have to keep both of those implications in mind about what he's saying. The imminent implication for ancient Judah, sure, but the broader implication too that is relevant for all people. Judah, as I say, was punished. But we need to look back on that historical event and see their punishment as a warning of that, that much bigger judgment that is still to come. I will bring distress upon them, God says in verse 17, because they have sinned against the Lord. So I guess then if anyone is without sin, 
they might just comfortably switch off and ignore this warning in Zephaniah about the day of the Lord. Otherwise, we should tune in. We can't make sense of, of the other promise of Scripture, of what God has done to save us, unless we first acknowledge this. Acknowledge properly where we do stand before him on this. We are sinners and we do deserve judgment. That's the point God inescapably leads us to in his word through Zephaniah chapter 1 here. We simply have to come to terms with that. We have to come to terms with God's sheer holiness on the one hand and then our unholiness on the other. We need a proper view of God and we need a proper view of us if if we're to make any sense of this day. The questions naturally arise as we read through this stuff and try to come to terms with this day. First of all, is it right for God to be jealous about this, as he puts it in verse 18? Is that right? It's not just here in Zephaniah 1, by the way. God does speak of himself as jealous in Scripture about these things. We saw it last week. We saw it again today in our Life and Doctrine segment. Just to recap uh, the second commandment of God, very explicitly he says in Exodus 20 verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or, or serve other gods, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. A little later, God gets even more explicit with that language. He says in Exodus 34, You shall not worship other gods, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. When God is described as jealous, or zealous would be a better translation for our modern context, it's in terms of him wanting our worship and wanting our worship to be exclusively for him. But is it right? Is that right? Is it right that God should be jealous like so? A lot of people today would say that that is absolutely arrogant of our God. But it depends, I guess, on whether you accept the revelation or teaching of of Scripture that, that there is only one true God. And that he is, is the one who gives us life and breath and everything else we have. If there is only one true God and, and he created all things and he provides all things, then worship simply cannot be given to anyone or anything else. That would just be patently wrong, wouldn't it? And therefore God's jealousy would be patently right. A second question people might ask. Is this the same Lord here in Zephaniah chapter 1 as Jesus in the New Testament? Is this the same God we're talking about behind all this? Well, well, in the New Testament, Jesus presents himself as the Lord of the day. He, He says he is the one who is going to come again for this judgment. And so too his apostles continue to explain Jesus as being the one appointed to judge the living and the dead. And so yes, this Lord here in Zephaniah 1 coming to bring such judgment is the same Lord, Jesus. There's no discrepancy between God in the Old Testament and in the New. It's the same God and God does not change. In fact, Jesus 
in the Gospels warned us at length about this coming day of judgment. It was Jesus actually who spoke to us more than anyone else about the, the consequence of hell on that day for all who would not first come to him and find salvation in him before he does return for this judgment on that day. For some reason we subconsciously catch, I think, mostly the judging aspect of God in the Old Testament and mostly the mercy aspect of God in the New Testament. But that's because we just don't read widely enough in either. The truth is both aspects of God actually run right through Scripture together. And if we're to take on the one, then we must be clear on the other. Justice is coming. And Jesus is the one appointed to judge the living and the dead. Without that truth, there is no mercy or salvation from God. But praise God, both are true. Both are true. And when the Son of God took on our human form, the Lord Jesus intervened early in this judgment timeline. Just at the right time, the scriptures say. Just at the right time, Christ died to save sinners from this coming judgment because he subbed in for us on this punishment. God subbed in for us on this. God took all of this justice that we're reading here in Zephaniah 1, the punishment that, that all of us who are honest know that we actually deserve. The Lord Jesus took that upon himself. And uh, with his death on the cross to receive the judgment for our sin, we, we now learn how God's justice and mercy can both intertwine the way that they do and how both can prevail. The justice has been taken for us. And so in him, in Christ, uh, the mercy of God can become ours. And that is the only hope that we have of surviving the day of judgment when it comes. No wonder we must not look to anyone else. No wonder God is so jealous for our worship. Everyone is guilty by Zephaniah 1. There's nowhere to hide. Everyone should be wiped away. Nothing we might offer, verse 18, can save us. But don't despair here in this awful chapter 1 of Zephaniah. God speaks that gospel of hope later in the book. And you'll see that when you read through it all later over the coming week. That's the idea of the series, remember. Just one chapter or so to get a sense of this prophet. You now go and read it on your own and in the study group through the week. Despite this judgment that everyone deserves, God holds out mercy in the end. But I kind of want us to come back to that next week. Come back to uh, the mercy of God more next week, Lord willing, when we open up another prophet because we first need to understand this. We first need to understand sin and judgment to make any sense of that mercy of God. The, the good news can only be appreciated by first coming to terms with the framework here of, of bad news that is set out in places like Zephaniah 1. There's just there's just no such thing as salvation without this backdrop of judgment otherwise. For believers, this is the gospel. This is what it means to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from this, in Zephaniah 1. A third question people might ask, is this proportionate? 
I mean, sure, granted, we're all sinful, right, sure, but to this extent, this is horrific. Is such extreme judgment really called for over our sin? Is it reasonable? Is it fair? Is it proportionate to our sin? Is God's wrath fair? We must remember that these are not Zephaniah's words, verse 1 says. These are the words of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. So this statement of our sin and this awful picture of how we deserve to be wiped out, universally wiped out, is, is the declaration of God. And I get that, that unbelievers are going to struggle with what he says here. I did too. We probably all did. But, but think about this. If, if God provides every good thing, your life, your breath, your everything else, and you have rejected him, then shouldn't you be cut off from, from all of those things? Until you learn to see it like this, that, that yes, we are all sinful, and yes, to this extent, then there is no gospel to make sense of. But there is. And God puts three calls on us in the gospel according to Zephaniah. Chapter 1's only got the first of those calls, and it puts it like this, verse 7, Be silent. Be silent, says God. Acknowledge the truth of this. Acknowledge where we stand on this matter of sin. Acknowledge the depth of that sin and the justice of God that therefore must come. We instinctively push back on these kinds of things. We, we grumble. We try to nuance and defend our case. But hush, says God. This is the true state of things. We are sinful. God himself has declared it so. And yes, the judgment is entirely proportional given who God is that we have sinned against. Be silent before the Lord God, verse 7. There'll be no pushback on that day when it comes. There'll be no defence counsel, no, no clever loophole as we always like to imagine in our heads. Just hush, says God. We are all sinful. And this day of the Lord must come. The next two steps come later in the book, so you'll hit them when you read the whole book later. If you can't wait that long, then, then spoiler alert. The second step is that we simply repent. God calls us to humble ourselves and seek him. And you hit it, say in chapter 2, verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. And after repenting, step three is then simply to wait. With our trust and our hope in God, he calls us simply to look forward to the day of his mercy in salvation for us, chapter 3. And the gospel is getting very clear, say, by chapter 3 and verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Here's the good news. The day of the Lord, when it comes, will be a day of salvation for everyone who turns to him first. 
I do encourage you, therefore, to read through the whole of Zephaniah later, to catch it all, discover that wonderful mercy of God that breaks through at the end. We'll hopefully get more time focusing on that next week. You might like to hit up the podcast archives too. Rethink the gospel in this book that we worked through in full uh, six months or so ago now. God willing, we'll be able to focus on the day of God's mercy more next week when we open up another prophet, as I say. But let's first acknowledge this part this part about where we actually stand before God in terms of our sin and the simple reality, therefore, that his pure justice against sin inevitably means that this day of judgment must come. Only when we grasp that truth can we really understand and receive Jesus in our lives as not just the judge of the living and the dead, but so too as our blessed saviour if we have come to him. It's a very hard topic, but it's a very vital topic, the wrath and justice of God against our sin. So enjoy this book and let these truths soak deep into your soul. But let me pray. Heavenly Father, we always thank you for the privilege of having your scripture in front of us, but uh, this one today is unpleasant to the max. It's frightening. It's very convicting, this word here in Zephaniah chapter 1. We pray, though, Father, that you would work this into us and and have your way in our hearts with this text. Help us, therefore, to examine ourselves. You, Lord, examine us, please. Help us to acknowledge our sinfulness before you. We read here your declaration that the scope of this is universal and that we, therefore, must be included. And therefore, we have nothing but thanks for you and the gospel of Jesus that we now know from from the rest of your scriptures, details that Zephaniah may not have had, Lord, but we know that you have taken this judgment that he proclaimed. We know that we deserve this, but you received it. You carried out this justice on Jesus to save us from this, and therefore all we can do is praise you. Praise be to your name, our Lord and God, forever and ever. Have mercy on us, we pray. Amen.